This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Golly, I guess it's Saturday. And and I sure hope it's January. No, it's it oh, it's it's Saturday the ninth of I I think it's April now. April two thousand and twenty-two. Welcome to another great, grand, and glorious episode of the show that has millions of screaming fans. It's been a day. <laughs> Sidarno, how was your week? It's been a great week. Uh, on the homestead front, I uh, buckled and got myself a riding mower. Uh, on the homestead front, I uh, we've got a we've got an echo. I've muted our guest. You can just check out his cool Dungeons and Dragons shirt instead. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a great week. Uh, lots of gaming. And lots of housework, yard work, and so on. I have returned to the Trollopolis campaign as a patron. So the and spoiler, I am playing a clan of dwarves, or I'm I'm leading a clan of dwarves. So the dwarves are on the move. There have been some great what can I say? Advancements in patron technology uh, since I last played. Uh, the guys, and big credit to the guy known as Macho Mandalf. Uh, they've really taken all of these hidden, unread, esoteric rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide and really max started to maximize what they could do with just NPCs and and patrons and high level players. Um, I I don't want to go into the whole spiel, but it's been a lot of fun. Although, uh, my loved ones look at me funny when I say, "Hey, excuse me, I'm going to go uh, sit for an hour and play Dungeons and Dragons with myself." <laughs> I uh. I believe that uh, Macho Mandolf is spending what seems to be what seems to player characters to be um, literally, you know, reams of money on uh, getting them to come to his domain and uh uh do stuff for him but to him is actually not that much money at all so he is spending his money wisely on getting adventurers to go out and unearth uh, kill threats to his uh domain and unearth old treasure that they can bring back and that he can then tax for 10 percent Tax. Yeah. <laughs> technically. Technically, 
it's a charge on old coins to change them into machadors, which is his uh, currency, because ancient coins are a violation of the law in Macho Mandolf. So there's a 10% charge on those. And you're, uh, <laughs> you're okay. Ruthless but fair. Very, yes. sh very shrewd shrewd leader so uh, okay but is that fun is that fun and and i want to bring i want to bring our guest in here uh, because he's wearing the D, D shirt do you have any idea what we're talking about mr jackson <laughs> no idea what you're talking about oh my goodness you are in for the, for a treat uh the folks Led by Jeffro of uh, Appendix N fame, they started playing AD and D First Edition by the book, and they found out all the weird, obnoxious, fiddly rules that didn't seem to make any sense. Mm -hmm. When when they actually played everything by the book, and the most important aspect was uh, one to one time, where in between session play. Every day that passes in the real world, a day passes in the game world. Got so it. I, I have been following their conversation about this, actually. So, so maybe you know what you're talking about. You know exactly what we're talking about. We're talking yeah. about the BroSR. Gotcha. Oh, my goodness. I can tax, too. Well, as, as soon as my domain is more than a village of dwarves, I will be levying the duties. Um, I, my, my dwarves are, are now getting busy. Uh, uncovering as many monsters as they can under the mountain uh, and generally causing trouble for everybody else in the world. But we'll find out more about that later. Uh, it's it it's great stuff. It still blows my mind that 1,600 square feet Cubic. is just one 10 by 10 square on a map. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just waxed my mind I, I i can't fit that into my mental conception of reality yeah when when you think about it like 10 feet by 10 feet by 16 feet 1600 yeah, 1600 square feet yeah 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 1600 cubic feet cubic feet sorry that's what i meant i keep on uh, doing the math and it keeps on coming out the same and my brain keeps on not wanting to accept it it's right just like no you're wrong <laughs> It's nuts, uh, and, and that's and that's the way the book rules go. I mean, I, I can't help but think that Gary Gygax honestly put together the math, and it was like, okay, a team of dwarves, or three teams of dwarves working around the clock, they will uh, cut exactly one <laughs> 10 by 10 square out of the mountain every day. That's it. There's lots more that goes into it, but, and that's the fastest. Nobody's faster than dwarves. That's cool stuff, and it's all right there. I'm I'm patting my dungeon master's guide right now. I should have a camera. Dungeon master's guide right now. It's all in there. Yeah, they haven't made. There it is. That one. That book right there. <laughs> I, I I hope everybody watching on YouTube uh, enjoys this. That's all the rules are in there. Nobody's made anything up. They've just uh, the the game master, uh, who's hanging out in chat. What's up, Brian? Uh, just read these rules and applied them to the game. You know, there's, there's, 
there is some interpretation to the rules uh, because, as we all know, anybody who's read uh, these old books knows that Gary didn't exactly dot all the I's and cross all the T's. That's right. Stone giants are faster than dwarves. All right. I, I would like to request a new patron, please. I'm gonna, I'll give you a team of stone giants. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. It's all there in the book. Very, very little interpretation, uh, but the implications are, it would be a ton of work for the game masters, but that's where the patrons come in, where you've got someone who doesn't have time for session play or doesn't want to or something like that. And you just, you hand them, hand them a high level character, hand them a domain, uh, sort of what you're doing is you're um, creating those high level characters who've already established themselves that when a game goes long enough, they should naturally develop. You know, oh, I, I retire my old fighter. He's a lord of a castle now, and he's got armies and whatnot. He doesn't need to go adventuring. Um, you know, but I, I'm not going to play him. I'm just going to, you know, and, and the DM takes that character over and, and says, okay, you know, so this lord does this and that. And so you can just create that situation just by saying, hey, you want to play D&D by email? Well, here's this character, here's his domain, and here are the resources he has at his disposal. Tell me what do you think he does every month, and and so and that and that person's a patron, uh, where they get to just help, and, and you just un the DM gets to unload all this work on the players, and speaking from experience, actually doing it, it's a lot of fun, even for the time involved. Like it's it's not a lot of time investment. You don't have to commit three to six hours to play a session with your buddies every week it's cool and they were uh one of the discussions that apparently happened about three weeks ago in the bro sr that i missed um was about applying these principles uh of one-to-one -one time of patron play um uh and then the implications of those to other games and deciding what other games would they work really well with. And I'm really sad I missed the discussion because I would like to, um, I would have liked to have been involved in seeing what other people's opinions about that are and what other people's, uh, um, you know, what games they think they would have worked well with what um ideas they would have on modifying that because i think you could do something like that and, and also uh the like in AD&D, what you have with a, a name level character a character who gets followers is you pick a spot on the map and you set up a settlement there and then you clear the monsters out of the hex you picked and then that becomes civilization if you then you know get people to move in and, and settle down and stuff so it's got that territory control element well you can translate that to other games so that's part of the patron play is the patrons are not just you know, they're, they're people who have their own 
interests, their own territory, their own income in the form of the peasants who live there produce X amount of silver a month. Um, and then they can start sending out patrols, they can build roads, they can build up uh, fortifications, build up a keep, and they have uh, wars or conflicts. You know, and conflicts is not direct wars where you're sending armies out, but uh, your interests don't align with neighbors who are close or far. And so you have uh, disputes over trade routes. You have disputes over who controls territory between you. You have, you know, maybe you're spend, sending spies out to find out what each other is doing. Uh, maybe you're sending assassins out or whatever. There are other things that are going on besides direct warfare. Um, maybe you're negotiating to get an alliance with someone else um, to, you know, go to one or the other of you. So you could take these same principles and translate them to, for example, um, and this came up in the discussion we were having last night, Shadowrun. But instead of settling the wilderness and clearing out the wilderness, uh, you would have patrons one-to-one -one time and uh, more of a confluence of interests to where, uh, you know, someone would say, well, here I am in this city and I have uh, interests in, you know, a particular business area or interests in uh, controlling all of X goods coming in at of the city or interests in uh, a monopoly on whatever whatever or or even as a game you had interests in x territory you know we're the 25th street diablos and we control these four blocks of the city uh and so we control all the crime in this area uh or we just control the physical territory and some Yakuza clan controls the crime. And so you could have patrons who control um, different aspects of the area. And obviously, you know, you could have hundreds or thousands of NPCs in the city. And you want to focus on like eight or nine of them who are actual patrons that are concentrated on your area of play. And then have them play the major NPCs uh, who are in conflict uh, or in alliances in that area, but you can extend those to all sorts of places. Um, in a, you could even make it, like, say, more like AD&D in a game like Gamma World or Twilight 2000. Um, there are a lot of different games that you can use these principles with now that the BroSR has discovered them and has formulated them and is practicing them, and it started to spread outside the BroSR to people who are not directly giving credit to the BroSR uh, because of it, which I think is just 
appalling, um, really revolting to just be repeating everything the Broessar has said, everything Chanticleer has said, everything B-dubs has said, everything uh, Brian has said on his blog uh, in the, you know, in the event, talking about domain management with Macho Mandolf, uh, everybody, everything that Jeffro has said, and then not actually crediting these pioneers, just taking the fruits of their um, efforts and their writing uh, and running with them. Uh, and then it's starting to spread far beyond now to where these uh, plagiarists are producing YouTube videos about it and saying, hey, this is this brand new thing I've discovered and just noticed that's in the DMG that has such big impacts for play. And it's like, now a lot of people are even saying, oh yeah, everybody knew about that that was already there. And it's like, no, dude, no, I've been doing D&D &D for a long time. And I've been involved in a wide range of D&D &D with a lot of people. And never have I ever seen this being promoted especially the one-to-one -one time out of play. And I'll tell you why I know that is because no one has ever suggested doing that ever to me. Nowhere have I ever read a campaign, uh, a campaign journal that says that they did that. Nowhere have I ever read in Dragon, uh, advice on doing that or an advice column telling you why you should do that i have uh i am not an exhaustive reader on gm advice but i have never seen ever in all of my broad reading in role-playing games uh any gm chapter suggests principles like this and as I have just discussed, they are widely applicable across many role-playing games and would have benefits to a lot of role-playing games. Um, and so I think this is a uh, the next revolution for a lot of people willing to step outside the critical role uh, audience performance boo boo critical role oh sorry i don't think critical role is bad as far as performance art goes um i mean i don't think it's inherently bad as performance art goes i think it's bad when people mistake their performance for a model of how a real role-playing table should act that is if you watch it and enjoy it, that's fine. If you try to make your own DM, your own D&D &D table run just like Critical Role, every comment I've seen on it has always been frustration. People saying, man, I can't make my game run like Critical Role, or every time I try it, it it's just no much, it's so much not fun. And they're almost crying in frustration because they think it's something wrong with them. And it's not them. It's that they're 
fundamentally speaking, trying to do something that's not role-playing. And I think that the principles of one-to-one -one time, patron play, uh, and, you know, domain play, territory control, uh, and a few others that have been identified. Uh, I've got to get together with Kess because he was mentioning them, and I want to get a... Um, I want to get a definitive list down. Uh, and this is going to be the first time I've ever admitted this, Jeffro, but uh, I am, for the thing, I am adapting those principles because they are uh, very, very, very much in line with what I was doing for the thing anyway. Uh, oh, yeah, mass combat rules in AD&D. And I have to say, I've been obsessing about mass combat rules with design of the thing for a long, long time. And I didn't even know why. I've often puzzled through why I was bothering. Every time I was building the combat rules, I was obsessing about mass combat. But yeah, turns out the mass combat is also a key of spell design for all the classes. First level spells being useful. Uh, like we found out phantasmal uh force anyway it's first level first level illusionist spell is quite useful because of its range and area of effect when translated to outdoors uh can affect an entire army unit um and there are several spells that are built like that right in the dnd right in the DM, uh, in the player's handbook, that when you translate them to the battlefield, they're mass combat spells. They're not just adventuring spells. Uh, and that only becomes obvious once you start playing with miniatures and using the rules as written for mass combat. So mass combat is an integral part of the game, and you only notice why certain spells exist the way they do when you are playing mass combat as it's written um so again playing the rules as written leads you to realize a lot of things that you wouldn't realize otherwise um so yeah i am adopting uh a lot of these ideas and processes for for the thing uh, <laughs> um, oh, I I want to I want to jump in and explicitly ask for uh, Jeff Jackson's take. Well, I'm listening to all this and I'm thinking I wish I had uh, entertained these modes of thought back when we were playing Boot Hill. Remember Boot Hill? Uh, I'm familiar with that. I never played it though. Um, yeah, just one of one of the early TSR games uh, came out around the same time as the basic set. Um, it, at the time we weren't imaginative enough to, um, cross pollinate rule systems with other games, but it would have, uh, really livened up boot Hill had we, um, applied some of the, uh, mass combat, uh, ways of thinking, um, to that milieu. Um, now I kind of want to revisit that game, knowing what I know now could be a lot more fun. I that hear you. Of it, there were just, just endless gun battles and uh, on the dusty street that ran through the middle of, of the one horse town. 
and and you now you know you can get a little bit more whole well, whole engine attacks and civil war reenactment actments and whatever else you want yeah i mean it's it's that it's practically de rigueur for the west to have the cavalry uh you know come riding to the rescue and have huge battles with gangs i mean there were 200 people in the cowboys um in the cowboy gang uh and then to have you know indian tribesmen uh in the hundreds fighting with the cavalry and your heroes doing things on the battlefield that just i mean that makes me want to play boot hill i'm not gonna lie that's <laughs> awesome now i'm thinking about the television series 1883. oh yeah i just watched that uh we talked about it the other week yeah yeah i remember oh it's uh boot hill would have been would have really benefited uh from that show having been around at the time mm. uh, it, it it definitely would have in, informed our our play um, I, I didn't mean to get uh, all sidetracked on on boot hill now but uh i just couldn't help but think about it uh, when he started uh, going down this thread and you know gamma world too well we could uh, i mean we could spend all day talking about that stuff and and uh, i'm gonna lay this completely on people who are not me uh you were in the shirt and you mentioned how much you love uh rpgs so we had to jump in but um i'd like to you know formally introduce you and give you a chance to introduce yourself uh what you're about here uh author jb jackson uh i am given to understand that your first book is ready to go and we're gonna and you've got a open kickstarter for getting copies out is that right yep uh the name of the book is shagduk and it maybe sounds like a mysterious name but um you'll know what it means when you start reading it uh it's been in the making for more than a decade um you know like a lot of people i have a job so I don't have a lot of time to write a novel, but I've been chipping away at it all these years. And once the actual writing started to happen, um, that didn't take, that wasn't um, as big a chunk of the time. A lot of it was just the conception of it, uh, you know, massive notebooks full of notes. Um, I had ideas for, um, um, you know, I, I, I thought of this before. I, I don't want to give too many things away. Um, I'm afraid of, of releasing spoilers here. But back in the day, I mean, this goes all the way back to D&D in the world of Greyhawk, um, but also Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. I was fascinated by the idea of imaginary worlds. And I'd go out to play in the neighborhood, and we had this um, wooded area we called the Lost Valley which is ridiculous because it wasn't a valley at all. It was actually a hillside um, behind people's backyards. But when we were in the Lost Valley, you know, it was it was Greyhawk. It was um, Mordor. It was whatever we, we needed it to be at the time. And as I got older, I began to realize uh, 
when you go outside to play in America, um, well, let me, let me back up. We don't have um, as rich a history as they do in, say, Europe. When you're in England or France, you see a plaque and it says, um, oh, Alfred the Great had lunch here in 868. So it's, it's easy to imagine knights in shining armor, uh, you know, dragons because of, uh, you know, Beowulf and all that. But here in California, you go out into the woods and you're in the redwoods and immediately I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to see an elf any second now. So I start to think back at the history of what's happened here. And, you know, there were some Native American tribes that are well documented in the area. But before that, not too far before that, there weren't any people here at all. It was just vacant land. Um, people hadn't come over the Bering Strait yet. And so I like to think, well, uh, what if there were people here before that? What would that be like? What if there were civilizations that had existed here? And we just don't know about them yet. And uh, I'm not the first person to, to think about this because today we do have a lot of um, fantasy novels and series that, that take place in uh, North America in the distant past. But um, so that that's what got me thinking about um, inventing my own world. So uh, I kind of ran up against a brick wall because I was concentrating too much on making it realistic. And so, um, you know, I got a, a map of the United States out and a blank one and imagine, well, what would it look like if you filled it in with, um, you know, Conan style, you've got Samaria up here and, and whatever. Um, and then I thought, well, I'm going to go back farther than that before the, the last ice age, um, maybe before the last, the, the, the penultimate glacial maximum. Uh, and then I started looking at maps of the world uh, a million years ago, a hundred million years ago. And then what was the climate like here? Could people have lived in that? And I just got bogged down in, in those, those details. And it was frustrating. So then, um, one one day it kind of hit me what if this is a parallel world what if it's um you know the irish have a name for uh, what is it the 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 veil um i forgot the the name of it um there are areas in the world where this world and the other world are separated by a thin veil and you can find it in um behind waterfalls or in certain forest glades or at the end of a rainbow or something. So then I thought, okay, well, that other world is actually well-documented. People have staked claims in that. They've planted their flags in it. It's already well-established. You know, you've got unicorns over there. You've got elves and dwarves and, you know, all the things that we're familiar with in the world of fantasy so it's like, well, there's no room for me to go in there and say, oh, well, here's this country that I made up and here are these people that I made up. So I, I found a way to invent all that and just make my world. And I have uh, explanations for why it exists. 
um, how it got there, what's happened since then, how is this world connected to that world? And then once I got comfortable with that, it all, everything just fell into place. And it's like, yes, this is where my book is going to go. So, um, they so said, you had, you had a lot of fun, actually, uh, what a lot of people like to do is world building and, and you just had a lot of fun doing that. Yes. And it took a long time. I'm talking about, you know, I spent 10 years on this uh -huh. transcribing notes and organizing them. And, um, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, yeah, I'll stop for now until I, I regain uh, what I was going to say. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I guess that was my fault. Oh, okay. I, I, I shan't interrupt you again, except for oh, right now. I, I know where I was heading with this. So I thought they say write about what you know. And so back in the 90s, I wrote these um, zines. You know, zine culture was nascent and... Um, a coworker was making one. It's like, oh, what do you got there? And he showed it to me. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. So I thought um, at the time I was reading this novel called Diary of a Nobody by the Grossmith brothers, George and Whedon Grossmith. And it was written around 1900, 1910, I think. And it's about this guy and he's just documenting his boring life. But you start reading it and it's not boring at all. It's really funny. Uh, just absurd encounters with the butcher, um, arguments with his wife, um, vexing encounters with his children. And so I started writing a diary based on an exaggerated version of me where I would just uh, exaggerate my daily life to absurd proportions so it would be funny. And I'd share it with my friends and I, I would trade with other people through the mail who were making zines. And it's just this fun thing I did for a long time. And it got me in the, in the habit of writing in a diary format. Uh, it became very easy for me to tell a story in chunks of one day at a time. Uh, so when I was thinking about writing a novel, I thought, oh, no, I don't know if I can do that. Um, the, the kind of narrative you get in a, in a typical novel, uh, it's not divided into these neat daily chunks. And I didn't know if I could do it. And then one day I thought, well, what if I make the novel a diary? It's been done before. Um, diary of a Nobody. Um, Bram Stoker did it with Dracula with letters. So once that that opened up a door for me. Uh, so I thought uh, they say, write what you know about. So I'll make the character a librarian who's in a band. Okay. Here's day one of the diary. Here's where he is. What's going to happen to this person. That's so exciting that you're going to write it, make it a novel. So I looked at my notes and I pieced it together. I thought, well, this could happen. This could happen. And then it just, took off like a like a snowball effect and it i won't say that it write itself but um i would start writing these diary entries and questions would happen and i saw this thing the other day um tolkien wrote a piece i think it was in response to criticism by the poet wh uh, auden <clears throat> where tolkien said you know i didn't write an outline for lord of the rings 
um, when such and such here, who's that Tom Bombadil appeared. I didn't know who Tom Bombadil was. He said, I'm, I'm doing Tolkien now. Um, so as Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, these characters would show up and these places would show up and he didn't know about them yet. And that's what's happening to me. Um, uh, one of the characters discovers um, an interesting book that has been donated to the library and it's downstairs in the basement where they keep all the donations. They've got the rare books down there. It, it's that you're imagining right now a room that any old academic library would have where it's just filled with neat old stuff. Well, this librarian goes down in there and he finds this stuff. And one of these items is uh, looks kind of like a spell book. And it's got um, diagrams, ge you know, complicated geometrical diagrams in it. It's got formulas. Um, it's written in a language that he actually understands because of another book that he discovered, which was a grammar of this particular language he'd never heard of. And he and a coworker um, learned that language so they could speak to each other in the library and no one else could understand them. So he finds this thing that looks like a spell book and it's like, oh, I, it's that language. Hey, look at this. Um, so he can understand it a little bit. And when I wanted to think, okay, well, what happens next? I just refer to my notes and say, oh, that could happen next. I could go that way with this. And so um, now I'm at book two, you know, book one is done. And uh, I do have an outline for book two, but it, it's very kind of loosely organized. I know where I want to go with it. I know these certain things need to happen, but the road that I'm taking to get there uh, is filled with a lot of discovery as I encounter, uh, as, as the main character encounters these people and situations that I didn't anticipate. And I thought, oh, well, this, this changes everything. What if I turned left here? Uh, but I still have to get to my final destination. So anyway, it's, it's a very rich process that counts as a very serious hobby for me. Uh, some people are, you know, they play Dungeons and Dragons or they're involved in ham radio. Well, my hobby has been this world that I created, the, the world making piece of it, uh, the, the, the piece of it that culminated in the, the series that I'm writing right now. Um, another very important piece of it for me is uh, the book takes place in 1977 in Fort Worth, Texas. And so because it's a diary and because it, I want it to be believable, I'm paying careful attention to, well, what happened on January 10th, 1977? How would this character, would he have anything to say about that? What was the weather like that day? Does he need an umbrella? Um, he's going to go have lunch. Where is he going to eat? Well, where where does he work? And I, you know, I'd get out a map of Fort Worth that was published before 1977. So I could get an idea of what it looked like then. So then I got a, um, an account with newspapers.com. So I could look at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram 
from 1977 and I started to read the paper every day and it helped get me into that mindset. Um, so when I had a question, well, let's say that the character um, needed to get rabies shots and I won't, I won't spoil anything and tell you why, but I thought, well, what was the rabies treatment in 1977? What did that look like? Uh, so I had to do research. I get on Google, I'd go down all these rabbit holes and it was that research piece of it that was a really important part of the entire hobby for me. It was just an excuse to learn stuff. And I have learned so much about the world just by doing research for my novel that there were times where it was so distracting that I didn't even worry about writing it. I was just happy to look at Wikipedia all day long and click all the links that took me from uh, bananas to Cuba to um, the movie Star Wars, which came out in 77. So um, I'm really often I'm really, really preoccupied with all of this to the, to the degree that um, I'm lost in space. People look at me and they're like, hello, Jeff, you know, what's going on? I'm, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. What, what were you saying? Uh, Cause I'm just constantly thinking about it. And I've got these, um, I cut envelopes, junk mail, I cut envelopes in half and I write stuff on them. And then at the end of the day, I take everything I've written and I've got hundreds of these and I organize them. Uh, it used to be in a big old binder, but now um, I do it on online in Google. And uh, every single day, one of these little scraps of paper has uh, the next diary entry for my novel on it. Um, I should stop talking for a second so you guys can get a word in edgewise, but I just wanted to point out um, uh, interviews like this, you talk a lot and people get thirsty. So I thought, well, what am I going to drink on this? Should I just have a cup of water? And then I remembered a gift that a very sweet coworker of mine gave me, uh, this can of liquid death. And I'm going to open it now on your show and drink it. So if you see me slumped to the floor, um, I, gu I guess call 911 or something. Uh, you guys don't even know where I live, so that may not be helpful. But but here I go. I'm going to drink this liquid death. Which liquid is, death. Get it. It says sparkling water, but I wonder. <laughs> With a name I'm like going to guess Ohio. It's just ordinary water. Uh, I live in um, Sonoma County, California. Uh, I've, been, I've been in California since the 90s, and I've lived here longer than um, I did in Texas. I'm so going to tell may, you that you wouldn't have even been my third guess. Yeah, you may not detect a Texas accent. I can my hear second, it. My second guess was going to be Mississippi, but that's because I couldn't remember Missouri, <clears throat> which is actually going to be my second guess. Um I, I wanna, uh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I've been dropping in and out. I don't even have the right to ask a question. Well, when you guys are, are bickering <laughs> you while you're here, say really quickly, thank you, um, uh, John and Mr. Warpig for having me on Geek Gab. This is this is really cool. Um, 
what does de I can't even pronounce that word because I don't know what language it is. Uh, de I'm guessing that's Gorka. Latin. Yeah, it's Latin, and I stole the title from. Um, you may have heard the the book De Re Metallica. Um, I can't remember who wrote it suddenly, but I, I think in Latin it just means of things pertaining to Dord. And Dord is the name of the world that I made up. It's a generic name. It's kind of like the, how we call this the Earth. Mm-hmm. It's not really the net. Uh, it's not really a proper name exactly. Um, and you know, I don't even really get into it that much in the novel. It's just, it's just a word. It's just a sound. But a quick word about it. Um, I think maybe it was in the 30s, there was an edition of the Webster's Dictionary that had a typographical error in it. And the entry was for the abbreviation for density in, in the field of chemistry. <clears throat> so just a capital D period meant density. So in the dictionary, it said D capital D or D lowercase density parentheses, chemistry. And there was a typographical error which sandwiched the whole D or D thing into a word doored. So it looked like the word doored. And it persisted for years until somebody found it one day and they're like, doored, what the hell is doored? You know, I'm a chemist. I've never heard of this word doored before. And they, they, they tracked down the error and they fixed it. Um, So the word never really existed. But back in the day, um, I was doing some music and I wanted a a cool name for myself rather than J.B. Jackson. Um, And a friend of mine suggested, how about Dord? And it seemed to to fit with the kind of music I was doing. Like, okay, I'll call myself Dord. So it's just been this kind of personal brand name ever since uh, the late 80s that I wanted to do something with. So when it came time to give a name to this world, just I'll just call it Dord. Um, so it, it, it doesn't even, you know, have an etymology yet. Um, I might, I might get there, but um, when it came time to give the, the series of books, a series title, it's like, well, how how do they come up with names for series? And so I, I investigated. I did a, a Google search, you know, the, the greatest 100 fantasy series of all time. Like 37 of them had the word dark. And then 62 of them had the word chronicles. And I think 10 of them are actually called the dark chronicles. So it's like, well, <laughs> if I call it the, the something chronicles. It can't be the dark this or that. Um, and then I remembered in my book, one of the books that they're talking about is called De Re Dordica. And a Latin scholar was evidently aware of this place and he wrote about it a little bit. So I thought, oh, that can be the name of the series. It, it just felt perfect. And I didn't overthink it at all. I just went with it. So yeah, um, Shagduk is book one of the De Re Dordica series. I I have found that 
when you assign something a title without really thinking about it, even if you think to yourself, okay, this is just like a temporary thing and I'll come back and figure out the real title later, you never do. That's always what sticks. Yeah, and you don't have to. Um, but you can, and I might. I think that I no, I think that's a great title. Well, funny thing, um, Tolkien invented a few languages to help um, flesh out uh, the realism in Lord of the Rings, and I wanted to do the same thing. Um, my undergraduate degree was in linguistics, and so I'm interested in languages, and I always wanted to invent some. Well, it's a lot harder than it sounds, and you can devote a lifetime into creating a convincing language. So these days when you've got like um, whatever the latest incarnation of Star Trek is, for example, uh, they've got Klingon. Klingon's a real language now. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, that's cool that they put in all that effort to, to give that world such life. But I work nine to five. I don't have time to invent languages. And so I kind of took a page from Tolkien. He, um, people may not, realized that he essentially plundered Old English, Welsh, um, Finnish for the languages that they speak in Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, they're not one-on-one -on -one correspondences. Like it's, it's not dwarves don't literally speak Welsh, but what I'm saying is that uh, these real life languages informed his fantasy languages. So I thought, well, I'm going to invent these languages on an as-needed basis. I may not ever need it, but when I get to a place in my book where I need a little phrase or a word, um, because of the, I've got this whole lost continent background. Um, once upon a time, there was a continent off the Pacific coast of California and the natives called it Volcar, and um, they spoke a language that our Latin scholar calls Dord, and we don't know why. Dordic, Dordic is the language, so hence De Re Dordica. So I've got a few words of Dordic, and it immediately irritated me because the word Dord does not conform to the sounds that exist in the Dordic language. And the way that I fixed that was, oh, well, we, um, Dord is just that Latin guy. That's just his word for the language. And we don't even know where he got it. But the Dordic people who speak Dordic, they have their own word the language so we you and i refer to the finnish language as finnish but mm. if you're speaking finnish you call that language su suomi hey suomi and and german and deutsch yeah and yeah japanese and nihongo so that problem solved uh next um so i didn't i didn't think about it anymore uh oh so because some of this background of this lost continent, it ties into my novel and you'll, you'll get to it in book two and book three, but this continent sank and I've got this whole reason for it. There was, you know, 
wizards and demigods and a battle and the continent sank and the people who were in charge of it, uh, the, there were seven wizards and they, they fled with their followers in all different directions. And some of them came to North America. And this would be about, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, roughly. So then when people came down over the Bering Strait across uh, what was at the time, we call it Beringia, and they came down the ice roads into what is modern day Canada and the United States, they encountered people who were already here. And they are the people who came from the sunken continent of Vulcar. And I try and look for these um, um, happy, uh, how to call it, um, Tolkien did this too, in the mythology of Middle Earth, there are strong echoes of Germanic mythology because England is um, closely associated with the Germanic peoples. And so I tried to look for opportunities to tie in my own uh, myths to existing ones. So I looked at the mythology of um, local Native American tribes and um, I looked at things that exist that we know about, but we don't know much about, um, things that in, uh, really stir the imagination. For example, the Yonaguni monument off the coast of Japan, there's a sunken um, structure off the coast of Cuba. Um, what do they call it? Um, the Cuban underwater formation is the name they give it in Wikipedia. Uh, we have, you may or may not have heard of um, giants, evidence of giants having existed in North America, and people claim to have found skeletons that are 11 feet long. Um, there are stories of it, people with elongated skulls, and all of this falls under the realm of, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he coined a word for it. It's called crypto history. And it's a word that has um, a pejorative um, aspect to it. Uh, real historians don't give the time of day to anyone who's interested in crypto history. So if you are a, a history professor at the University of California and you wrote a paper on, um, I don't know, Bigfoot, you'd get, uh, you'd get laughed at, laugh, laughed at um, by the academic community. And that, that has always angered me and irritated me. It's like, well, why, why not approach these things with an open mind? And if it turns out to be bullshit, you can say, here's why. And the dialogue that you create can be very interesting and perhaps illuminating. Uh, but just to be, just to completely dismiss it. Um, so um, I've started to investigate some of these um, crypto historical ideas and thought, um, you know, how can I tie this into what's going on in my book to kind of give it this undercurrent of uh, not 
realism per se, but um, it, it has echoes of things that you've already heard of, kind of like when um, in Lord of the Rings, when those peoples from the South come up with their elephants, that has obvious echoes of people from um, lands where elephants live. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, and, and uh, you know, off on a little tangent here, I was reading the other day about a guy in near San Diego. There's an archaeological dig where they found what appeared to be remnants of stone tools. And so they did carbon dating or whatever, and it came out to be about 100,000 years. So, well, they can't be tools because people weren't here 100,000 years ago. And that was the end of that. No real archaeologist would um, wanted to talk about it anymore because they would get laughed at. And so I was like, well, you know, come on. Um, are they tools or not? Um, is it really impossible that people made them? You know, let's look at this more closely. We don't really know a lot about who was here when. We just have very scant, scattered evidence. And the picture that has been painted over time, there's just a lot of gaps uh, in windows. So we know that the first people who came over probably came over the land bridge and it happened within this range of time. People could have come over by boat. We don't have much evidence of that. We really don't know. Um, so I'm using that these gray areas to inform what's going on in my book in a way that makes it um, deeper than it really is, if, if that makes any sense it gives us more um, historical weight. And in my mind, I'm looking around, you know, when I drive down the road to the nearest redwood forest and I take a walk, I don't think about elves anymore. I think about my own mythologies that I've made up that inform my novel. I start thinking about, well, what if one of those wizards and his followers landed over here off the, on the coast of Sonoma County and it just really gets uh, my imagination going and it, it's all me now. It's not, I'm not, um, when I was a kid, I was living out the world of Greyhawk. I was living out um, Gondor, but now as a 53 year old, I've got my own uh, mythological stuff that I made up and it, it just excites me and makes me want to dig deeper and find out more about it. Oh, that's awesome. And and from if I heard your if, if I understood your narrative correctly, you once you broke that uh, that barrier of trying to make everything believable, you actually accomplished what you wanted to do, which was a sort of vast and deep world building that still feels real. You've got the verisimilitude that you need to uh live in that world mentally and, and enjoy uh, creating stories in that world. Yeah. And because I let it be an organic process and it took so long to develop, at least to me, it lends to it a high level of um, believability. 
in a way that it would not if, for example, I thought, you know what, I'm going to make up something that sounds so cool and I'm going to give it a cool name and all this cool shit's going to happen. And then I'll write the story. It, 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 went, it, it, it happened the other way around. Um, it just developed naturally. And there are aspects of it that are cool probably, but there's a lot of it that isn't cool. And that's because that's how life is. When you read a history book, a lot of it's boring. And then there are these really exciting parts. And we tend to focus on the exciting parts and not on the boring parts. But it's it's a little bit of that boring stuff, um, real life, um, if you will, that fleshes something out and makes it realistic. And I'm thinking in particular, you know, keep going back to Lord of the Rings, but you may remember the scene where they're in the... Um, those marshes and there's the whole discussion about um, the rabbit stew, I believe. Um, unlike a lot of the flashier parts of Lord of the Rings, it was those mundane conversations over what are we going to have for second breakfast? Um, the talk about the rabbit stew, um, the apples that um, the hobbits were eating that were floating around in the uh, flooded aftermath of the fall of the um, uh, what's his face's tower. Um, uh, yeah, Saruman. Yeah, that that gave it, uh, it it grounded it in in reality in a way that made that sucked me into the the rest of the fantasy. Uh, it, it offered a door into that world better than just the relentless um, uh, historical passages that that Tolkien was throwing at us. Um, so when you have a mix of all those things together, you have something that feels like real life. Um, that being said, I should go back to uh, my zine days when I was making these zines. My goal at the time was to write something that was funny. It was humorous writing. Um, I was modeling what I was doing after the Diary of a Nobody book. And I'd share it with my friends and they'd read it and go, God damn, it's the funniest thing I've ever read. And it encouraged me to write more and make them laugh some more. Uh, so then when I wanted to, to write fiction, I thought, well, I want to write, you know, fantasy novel that is scary and dangerous and exciting. And I felt like if I tried to be funny or if it came out funny that it would ruin it somehow so i tried to suppress the the humorous aspects of it and i couldn't get it off the ground it just came out came off as just being grim and i, I didn't like it at all and so I, I i did have some false starts and i, I put them aside and i and i thought yeah i don't know if i can do this so then i read something about um the classical composer uh, Gustav Mahler, uh, I was reading some criticism of his symphonies where one critic said, you know, he's got everything in symphony number six, for example. He's got the kitchen sink and this and that, and he's got cowbells and there's laughter and there's sadness. You know, all, all of life can be found in a Mahler symphony. And I thought, well, shit, you know, he's got humor in there. You know, I, I know which parts they're talking about. They are kind of funny. And when you have those humorous parts backed up against the tragic parts and the cowbells and, and all of that, 
it feels more like something you can connect to. And so therefore I was, after that time, I was able to admit into my writing humorous passages and, and funny details. Uh, and when you have those backed up against, um, you know, the sadder moments and the exciting moments and the tragic moments, it, it really ramped up the, um, the realism in it. And, and it, I think it helps the reader um, buy into what I'm selling them. I, I think that bears out and, and I've just started just so that you know, we, uh, we received a review copy from Neil. Uh, thanks so much for that. And I just got oh, a few pages in and I think, <clears throat> and I, I see what it is that you're talking about because you're, uh, you're taking the time to uh, introduce this main character and he's, uh, you know, he's got his particular quirks and sense of humor and everything like that, that really comes out in the writing, while at the same time, you are clearly setting up, uh, you know, if, if you know that you're reading a fantasy or a horror novel, you know that you're setting up, okay, that's a reference to a cryptid, that's a reference to a, you know, a mysterious language, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense to me, right, that sort of thing, like, the things that you've already touched about earlier, like, mm -hmm. they're showing through right from, you know, from page one, but at the same time, you're, you're just... I don't know. I'm going to use a different metaphor. You're letting it breathe, right? Like, okay, these are this is a real person. This is sort of how he acts and thinks. Yeah. And, and it's something that a lot of stories don't do these days. You just get the fantasy part, and you don't get any of the other stuff. So you don't know who these people are, and you don't feel it because you can't put yourself in their shoes. Um. Where was I going with this thought? If if you can identify, you know, they, they, they do try it. Have you ever watched a movie where the characters are just these regular people? Back Going back to The Hobbit, um, Bilbo was just a regular hobbit living in the Shire, and he had a boring life. And then one day a wizard knocks on his door. And so you think, well, how did this wizard showing up affect his everyday life so next thing you know he's on the road he's going to go um, slay a dragon or whatever but on his way there he still has to feed himself he's got to get up and brush his teeth so in my novel you know you've got a a demon shows up obviously um but the guy still has to go to work he still has to pay his rent He's still got to brush his teeth in the morning, but there's this demon that's there. Um, you know, if you cut out all of that mundane stuff, you, you might not even have a story anymore. That, that's kind of my chief criticism of, of a lot of things that are that come out these days is they don't give enough. Um, they just focus too much on um, the cool parts. Right. There has to be like, some contrast there to, to give it life. Um, I want to I want to bring everyone's attention to the Kickstarter. Uh, I've got the link in the chat. We'll make sure the link is in the uh, in the show notes for everybody listening later. Check that out, or you can get the book. Uh, we we some of the people pointed this out earlier, 
And I'm just going to scroll. There's an update from Pylum Press. Uh, this is a great quote uh, from none other than Ernest Gygax Jr. Uh, I'm just going to read this out loud. Uh, this is uh, regarding your uh, work. As captivating as the works of Jim Butcher, told by a character drawn with the depth of Jack Vance. It brings to mind my first time reading through the Dungeon Master's Guide. My father would have certainly added J.B. Jackson to his appendix N. <laughs> so there you go. You, you this, high, uh, high uh, praise. High praise. High, high praise. You have a feather in your cap. Your first novel isn't even out yet. Uh, yeah, that that's high praise indeed, and it, it, it's undeserved. But um, you know, talking about Appendix N, you know, that's kind of where it all started for not only me but for a lot of people. Um, a friend of mine brought D and D to school, said, "Hey, play this cool game with me," and I remember the graph paper and the dice and. You know, opening the door, he's like, ah, gelatinous cube. So I fight the gelatinous cube, and there's some treasure, and put the treasure in my pocket, and I'd open another door, ah, another gelatinous cube. So uh, I remember buying one weekend, I was going to go stay at my dad's, and um, I knew this was out. And I said, take me to this hobby shop that's over where you live. And, and buy this book for me. And it was the Dungeon Master's Guide. And here it is. And oh, I spent yeah. the entire weekend reading this thing like a novel. I started on page one. And I wasn't even reading it for what it was, a, a, a system of rules for, for a role-playing game. But I was just reading the stuff that's in it. It's like, oh, here's a chapter on spells. And I'm reading these spells. And I was just blown away. It just changed my life. It, it kicked open, violently kicked open all these doors to my imagination. So, yeah, you get to these appendices, and uh, I love appendices. Uh, Lord of the Rings had appendixes, appendices. Um, appendix N here is, you know, inspirational and educational reading. These are the things that inspired the makers of Dungeon Dragons to, 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 to create this game. And... Uh, I saw that list and I'm like, who are these people? What, what is all this stuff? And it was about the same time that you could go to the grocery store and you're with your mom and they're check, they're ringing up the groceries and you're nine years old and you're bored. And so you're running around looking at stuff and there are these circular racks of paperbacks. Um, Daw Books was doing those yellow spined um titles at the time and if you looked at the covers they were paintings done by um, Boris Vallejo and Frank Frazetta and Jeff Jeff Jones and all the other greats and I'd look at these covers the whole time you know my mom's getting her groceries rung up I'm just staring at this book you know the Raiders of Gore and just thinking what is this this is amazing <laughs> and um it, Mom, can you buy me a gore book? Exactly. That's what I was like. You would buy me this, buy me this. You know, it's too late. She's already writing, got her checkbook out. And so I'm like fishing through my pockets. Can I have $3 or whatever? $2. 
uh, and I take it home. And I didn't even know, I didn't know the who the writer was. I didn't know anything about Conan or Gray Mauser. Uh, I just, it was just the cover that draw me, that drew me in. Um, so there's a lot to say about the, the artwork associated with, with these books and, and with uh, definitely with the Dungeons and Dragons rule books and modules and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I had um, Frank Rosetta to do an original painting for, for my novel. But, you know, it wouldn't ring true because my novel was written in 2022. And, um, you know, you see a lot of people who are looking backward at how great stuff was. And we can get that get to that in a minute. Um, and they want it, they, they love it so much. They want to emulate it. So you've got bands. Uh, it's like, we're going to be, we're going to do rockabilly music and they study it and they reproduce it. And they often fail because it's like they're performing a museum piece. Uh, whenever you've got someone posing as something that happened long ago. Um, and I could go off on a huge tangent here about the arts in general, about how, there's nothing about the 21st century to me that speaks to the time we live in. It's all a rehash of what's happened before. So I was conscious of that when I was writing this. It's like, be careful, Jeff. You're writing a book that takes place in 1977. Um, you want to be true to that as, as, if you, as if it were 1977 and you're writing this. Because if you fuck up, people are going to spot it and say, oh, this isn't true. This is, you're making this up. So there's a, a spell that I'm casting that I, I have to maintain at all times. Um, so um, I'm anticipating a question you might have for me. You know, why does this book have to take place in 1977? Well, there's no special reason at all. Um, other than um, it, it helps take you away from here and now. It takes you to a different place. The 70s, when I grew up, were to me a glorious time to be alive. Everything just seemed so fucking cool. It was the absolute zenith of human civilization, 1977 to 1982. TV was killer. Movies were great. Um, progressive rock was at its peak. The best punk music was coming out right then. Uh, disco was only going to get better. You had your Hotel California, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and you had every reason to believe that every new song on the radio would be better than the last one. And it was. It was incredible. Um, uh, I mentioned at the grocery store they had those um, – those Conan and Elric books, all that sword and sorcery. Um, imagine, imagine picking up one of those as a 12 year old. It just blew my mind. Uh, heavy metal magazine, Monty Python had just come out. Rush was putting out their best albums. Um, Carl Sagan's cosmos was right around the corner on TV. So um, Shagduck is presented as a diary. And by starting it in 1977, it gave me an opportunity to relive that period of time as a grown-up instead of experiencing it as a kid. It just makes it more fun for me. 
And I assume for the reader, because if I pull it off well, then... Star Wars came out in 1977. Yeah, and um, the character, my character in my book is obviously going to respond to that, and he does uh, in book two. Um, book, book one is about 300 pages, and you're reading his diary from January 1st, 1977 to May 8th. So um, a little over four months. And I was kind of astonished to think, wow, this is four months of someone's diary. It takes up 300 pages. Uh, so be it. <clears throat> so yeah, that that's the only reason I, I, I picked 1977 is I just wanted to relive that time. Um, but I wanted it to be well done. You know, any, anytime you, you um, enjoy a period piece, you're looking for those anachronisms. Aha, they didn't have that car then, or aha, that didn't, you know, they wouldn't talk that way. So I find myself constantly pausing and thinking, oh, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Let me think. Okay. There's a scene in my book, which you may, some people may have already read it because it's in the Philadelphia section. And that was published as an excerpt in um, this book, the wells of earth that came out earlier from Pilum. Um, the main character of the book, as I said, is a librarian. So um, there's a couple of days where he and a coworker go to Philadelphia to a library conference. And I tried to evoke that as accurately as possible. I'm a librarian. I've been to library conferences. So what goes on there? Um, and just go from there. So, you know, obviously he writes about it in his diary when he gets back to his hotel room. And one of the things he writes about is some of the um, booty they got at the conference, uh, a mug that said librarians do it better. So I'm like chuckling to myself, you know, I wish I had that mug. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Did people say that in 1977? Blank, do it better. So I started Googling it um, and I got really lucky. I was on eBay and I did a search for vintage and then, then in quotes, do it better. And in the results list was a t-shirt and it said nurses do it better. 1977. So I'm like, what? How do they know this shirt is from 1970? How could they know that? So I looked at the description and they had an anecdote that said, this is a reproduction of a shirt that a fan at a Led Zeppelin concert on like April 10th, 1977 threw onto the stage. Robert Plant picks up this shirt and I think he puts it on says nurses do it better and he says in the microphone nurses do it do do it better my wife is a nurse and i should know you know the story was something like that so i had really well documented proof that people said things like nurses do it better in 1977 and so i was able to check that off and say okay good um i got that right Oh, that's cool. Um, so that's a good example of, you know, learning things along the way um, while I'm writing that makes it a really rich experience for, for me as the writer. You know, obviously, as the reader, you wouldn't know anything about the anecdote I just told you. <clears throat> okay. But you managed, I, 
manage to find it. Oh, that's, that's awesome. cool. Have you used the, the I forget what it's called, but um, Google's eaten so much data, you can get a graph of the usage of terms over time. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm aware of it. I don't know how to use it. I forget that ex it exists. But my, my um, editor at Pylum, uh, Neil Durando, he knows about it and he uses it all the time. And sometimes he shares the results with me. Um, I need to remember that tool. It's it's a really really good one. Uh, it's it's awesome, especially if you're curious about current events. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. If 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 you're if you if you ever get that that tickle in the back of your mind, you're like, this is the first time I'm encountering this word, and these people are using it as if it's you know as if we've always been at war with East Asia. I wonder if this is propaganda, and you and you do that search, and you're like, sure enough, definitely you know, sp spike in usage of X one Y term engram. That's it. Uh, spike in usage of of this thing. Yep, somebody's trying to somebody's trying to do something. Yeah, it's good to see you in the chat, Neil. Well, a thing about um, neologisms uh, that fascinates me is in popular culture, uh, how should I say this? Um, we're all aware of these words that just appear out of nowhere, and then suddenly everyone's saying them, and you think, where did this word come from? And if you think about it for a moment, you realize that one person somewhere invented the word and used it. And that is how we got to this point where everybody's using it. It's not the case that the word spontaneously was born in multiple places. Um, that would be impossible. It had to originate from somewhere. That kind of blows my mind a little bit. Uh, it's, and the way that the way that a word can, if it's a useful word or idea, and and that's that's I, I'm not using that in a positive way, but that's neutral. And if it's a useful word, it will explode like that, yeah, and just take over, and everybody's saying it. And sometimes it's useful, good, like it. I I'm not even going to think of a good example right now, but like sometimes, oh yeah, you know that that describes something that uh, is is interesting or important or, or meaningful. And sometimes it's useful in that, okay, we can get people to get on board with, you know, whatever our agenda is and we'll go ahead and, and that, you know, becomes propaganda. Yeah. I, I, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, sometimes we needed the word. It's like, Oh, this is perfect. There's this idea that's out there, but we don't have a word for it. Now we do. But then sometimes there already was a word and it's like, well, why don't you just use this word? This word is just sitting here. It's been here the whole time. We don't need a new word. Um, just a random example of that would be people are calling records vinyls. Um, and I think right. because records um, disappeared really. Um, and then they were rediscovered and we kind of did need a new word for them because nobody knew what you were talking about. If you said, Oh, I bought a record today. What, what do you mean? Government records, you know, some documents. What, what are you talking about? So you have vinyl records to distinguish them from all the other records you, you, you might be talking about and then vinyls. And it irritated me at first until it's like, you know, this is, 
this is the nature of language. This is how how language evolves, and it's it's normal. It's nothing to get upset about, Jeffrey. <laughs> that really must, as as a linguist, that really must stick in your craw sometimes. Well, it does. But and, and then in in the discipline of linguistics, you have these two schools of descriptive and prescriptive linguistics, where you've got the people who are simply describing what they see. And then the people who are dictating how it should be. Uh, so in France, for example, you have the um, academy, you know, that some academy that says this is the French language and this is how it will be spoken and written, and they lay down the law. Meanwhile, you have Urban Dictionary, that's the other extreme, where it's here's all the crazy stuff that's out there, and we're simply documenting it. Mm -hmm. A lot of dic dictionaries in general operate that way now. They're, they're, they're kind of conservative about what they will admit into the dictionary, but they're pretty responsive when it comes to those, those neologisms that, that catch on fire and everybody uses them. And they sometimes they're like the word of the year. That, that stuff ends up in the dictionary as well it should because it is language and it is English. Um, all right yeah I've got some bad news i know i know i was just about to say hit me with the bad news dw we are way over time. oh <laughs> all right that tends to happen when i start talking um maybe uh have me back sometime um and i can talk some more if you want to want to fill up some more time uh, there's a, a number of things i would have liked to have touched on that um we didn't get to um, so again thank you so much both of you this was a really cool experience um, I'm, uh, in, you, I'm into what you're doing i get well, it we're 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 into what you're doing now no thank you thanks Thanks a lot. I'm going to, is there anything else that you want to say or plug before we go? Uh, well, we, we touched on it a little bit. The Kickstarter is a big deal. It's helping uh, the publisher defray uh, production costs. There are some people who deservedly uh, should be paid a lot of money for uh, the help that they gave us. Um, a shout out to uh, Kirsten, um, our proofreader for sure. Um, so yeah, there's the Kickstarter. Um, uh, that's about it. The, the, the novel, uh, Shagduk is, should be coming out in, in June. Um, you can definitely buy it straight from the publisher, Pylum Press, but it'll, it'll be available elsewhere. Um, but may as well buy it now because there are some opportunities on the Kickstarter to get like, um, you know, signed copies and, and other little, little, weirdnesses um one of them is a an original page from steven's diary um that exists and, and you can own that and have it framed in your study it's <laughs> cool you contribute the right amount of uh money to the um the project i i, I appreciate it uh i'm gonna just remind uh, anybody watching live i uh, hope you enjoyed the show I do have the Kickstarter up on my screen. Check it out, Shagduk. I'll make sure that link is in the description at the end of the show if it's not. Uh, lively chat. You've got a lot of fans and a lot of new fans. Um, 
who really, I think they came here for the RPGs, but they stayed for the cryptids. Uh, really looking forward to that. I'm glad you guys joined us for today. And everybody listening live, I hope you enjoyed the chat as well as take a look at uh, JB Jackson's work. Um, uh, that's all I have for today. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, thanks for being an amazing uh, host, Eddie Warpig. Uh, it's your show now. All right, folks. Uh, thanks to everybody who tuned in and participated in the chat. Things were jumping uh, in the chat today. So uh, whether you listened live or whether you're going to turn in and listen later, uh, youtube.com slash geekgab. That is youtube.com slash geekgab. Remember, if you can catch us live, we're here Saturdays, uh, most Saturdays, about 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can participate in the chat and uh, gain uh, glory from uh, interacting with the unusually intelligent and uh, sexually attractive members of our audience and leave your mark on the world. And uh, if you come and listen later on YouTube, all the uh, chat is preserved there in stone for eternity as it should be. Now then, if uh, you want to listen later, uh, you can, of course, download GeekGab on the Apple iTunes Store, on the Google Play Store, or on SoundCloud.com. Download it on the device of your choice or just listen to it on your Windows and or Macintosh personal computer. We uh, want to thank JB Jackson for coming on. It's been a great show today, folks. And uh, we are signing off for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.